It's been a problem uh, from the very beginning, and it has been uh, a lingering problem ever since. Uh, in many ways, you could call it the problem that just won't go away. I'm talking about the problem of pain. Uh, specifically, I'm talking about the problem of evil in the world, the, the problem of sorrow, suffering, and injustice in the world, and all the pain uh, that flows out of that evil, out of that sorrow, out of that suffering, out of that injustice, all the pain that flows out of it, all the pain that's attached to it. Uh, now, everybody here understands pain. We, we've all had pain, uh, and we all understand that pain comes in lots of different packages. Uh, you know, there's physical pain, obviously, that's tied to some type of cause within our body, uh, but there's also violence that leads to pain, abuse that leads to pain, whether physical or verbal or mental. Uh, there's, you know, sickness, obviously. There's the, the pain of betrayal or, you know, being disappointed. Uh, there's the, the pain of a failed relationship. Uh, there's the pain pain uh, of a broken heart. Uh, there's the pain of a struggling soul. There's the pain uh, of an addiction that you just can't shake. There's the pain of, you know, uncertainty. There's the pain of financial strain. It, it just keeps on going. Uh, we, we could sit here all day and tease out all the different packages that pain shows up in our lives as. Uh, you've got your story. I've got my story. So we all understand pain. Uh, but specifically when we're talking about the problem of pain, uh, Robert Nash kind of highlights uh, the late professor exactly what I'm talking about. He says that the most serious challenge to belief in God was, is, and will forever be the problem of pain, the problem of evil, the problem of sorrow and suffering and injustice in the world, that it is the most serious challenge. It is the greatest obstacle in someone believing in God. Now, this was recently echoed in a study where a group of people were asked, hey, if you could ask God one question, if you could ask one question and one question only and have God answer that question, what would your question be? And so you can only imagine, I mean, there's all kinds of things that come to mind. I, I would be like, hey, can I get three, at least three, uh, but one, okay, I, I could come up with something and I think you could come up with something as well, but the vast majority of people, um, they knew their question and, and their question, they said that we would ask God is, why is there pain and suffering in the world? God, I, I, I want you to answer this question. I could ask you anything in the world, but why is there pain and suffering in the world? Now, we should all just, you know, call a Zach Morris timeout for a second. Some of y'all have no idea what I'm talking about. It just occurred to me. Uh, never mind. I don't have time to, to bring you up to speed. But we all just need to call timeout for just a moment and, and ask the question, why is this question on the hearts and the minds of so many people? If a group of people were asked, hey, what's the one question to ask God? And they were like, well, I'd ask God, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Why is that on the hearts and minds of so many people? It's because I believe that there is this apparent ongoing disconnect, this, this ongoing tension and this felt contradiction uh, that many people have uh, between what we have been told about God uh, about what we've been told is true about God, that God is good, God is loving, God is just, uh, God is merciful, God is patient, God has a perfect plan for your life. And we've got what we've been told about God and what we've been told is true about God. And then over here, we've got life and we've got our experiences and the stories and the news and, and all the facts and all the things that we know. 
And, and so we walk around and we've got life on this hand and we've got what we've been told about God and what is true about God in this hand. And there is a tension between those two things. Uh, sometimes it's more than a tension. It feels like a, a disconnect. Uh, and, and it feels like almost like emotionally, we feel it emotionally, this contradiction between what we've been told is true about God, but what we see playing out in life. So it, it makes sense why people would want to know why is there pain and suffering in this world? Now, if we just think about it just for a moment, uh, when any of us pause long enough uh, to look around, and, and we, we should do that, uh, we're all busy, we all got our lives and goals and ambitions and things we're trying to do and get done in, in our time here on the planet, and that's good and that's well, but we should all just pause every once in a while and we should just look around uh, and remind ourselves that our world is bigger uh, than just us, uh, that our world is bigger than just our four or our five or our 12 or our little tribe. And when we look around at the world and we pause long enough to see, and we pause long enough to think, and we pause long enough to feel, uh, we will understand uh, what we knew before, but we just don't always think about is that the world is full of cruelty. There's a lot of cruelty in the world. Uh, there's a lot of tragedy in the world. And when you put all of that cruelty and all of that tragedy, when you put it in a big bucket, there is really not a bucket big enough to contain all the unimaginable numbers of stories of unbearable pain and suffering that emerge out of all that cruelty and all that tragedy. It's in our community. Uh, when we look and listen and pay attention to long enough, it's probably in segments of your family. It's certainly in our state. It's certainly in our nation and absolutely without question all around uh, the world. And, and as we think about it and as we pause to, to contemplate it and to wrestle with why and what could the reason be and what could the purpose possibly be, and, and as we kind of sit with that and, and we think about it, I think that most of us who are reasonable, uh, I think sooner or later, we have the same thought. Uh, we may express it differently, but I think we have the same thought. And, and we think to ourselves, or sometimes even if we're talking among friends, we will say out loud with our own words, you know what, if I could do something about that, I would. If I could do something about that, I would. I'll tell you what I would do. I, I, would, I would nix that in a heartbeat. There would be no more of that, People who had this opportunity to do such evil would never have opportunity to do evil again. Matter of fact, if I could do something about all of this stuff, all this cruelty, all of this tragedy, all of this pain and suffering and injustice and all the pain that's attached to it, if I could do something about it, I would. Because you're just human enough that it bothers you that much. You're just human enough that you feel it. And if you have empathy, you know, of any level, you can empathize with the people who are on the other side of whatever pain that you find so offensive or suffering that you find so troubling or injustice that you find so concerning. And we would think to ourselves naturally, if I could do something about that, I would. If I could put an end to all of that, I would. Wouldn't you? I would put an end to it. If you could stop it, would you not stop child abuse? Would you not stop childhood cancer? Would you not stop wars and terrorism? Would you not stop all this stuff? Well, of course you would. Of course I would. We're human. And from our perspective, that's what we would do. Yet, <laughs> here we are. We got life over here. We got God over here. And from our perspective, it seems as though God is doing nothing. 
Though we're told that God could do something, but yet not only does he refuse to put an end to it, it's a bit more troubling than that. He allows it. He allows it to continue. And if that's not bothered you, well, you've just not thought about it. And if that doesn't cause you some type of tension or some type of felt contradiction, then, then you're just not thinking. You're, you're just believing blindly. You're just swallowing without any thought whatsoever. I mean, that would bother anybody. He, he just allows it. And, and if we say, you know, Christians, we, we got our little retorts and we got our little, you know, cliches. And, you know, most of us, we even got coffee mugs at home to remind us of what those are. It's like, you know, we walk into those kind of situations where just all hell is broke loose and there's so much pain and so much brokenness. And, you know, we can walk into a situation or look at it and regard it. Or even sometimes I, I've known people who've said this to people going through some of the most unimaginable circumstances that you can think of. You know, well, God is God. And God can do what he wants to do. Well, now, hey, that may be true. Matter of fact, I, be I believe that that is true. But you know what? That sounds heartless in the ears of a mom or dad who has a child dying of cancer. Well, I'll just tell you, God's God. He can do what he wants to do. Well, skippy-doo. <laughs> Wonderful. Swell. Drop-dead jerk. You know, why, what, you know, it's like, what? That's heartless. That doesn't, that doesn't feel very reassuring. doesn't feel very comforting. That's not encouraging. But on, on one end, you know, if we just say God's God and God can do what he wants to do and we just disregard the pain and the suffering of people groups and ethnic groups and individuals and families going through this and God's God, God can do what he wants to do. It's like, okay, yep, no big deal. That works for me. That, that feels heartless. That sounds heartless on some level just to say that. But... If a person says, well, you know what? All this pain, all this suffering, all this injustice, you know what it tells me? It just tells me there's not a God. That, that, that there can't be a God that exists and allow such a world to exist. And if you allow the pain and suffering and injustice, whether in your life or somebody else's life or the world in general, to cause you to not believe or disbelieve or unbelieve in a good, loving, just God, well, that's not heartless to me that, that just feels thoughtless. That, that just feels like you're not thinking very much. It was this, it was this tension, this contradiction that, that the famed uh, professor from Oxford, Cambridge, uh, C.S. Lewis, it's what he grappled with before he came to faith. And this is what he wrote in his book uh, entitled The Problem of Pain. He said, not many years ago when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, why do you not believe in God? My reply would have been, look at the universe we live in. History is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror. And it is. The universe is running down. All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been a transitory and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter. If you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply... He says, if you tell me that there's a loving, just, good God behind all of this, I reply that all the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either, and this is where he landed, you know, at that point in his life. He says, either there is no spirit behind the universe. There's no such thing as God. There, there's no such thing as a designer. There's no architect of creation that we're just, we're just here. He says, either there's no spirit behind the universe or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil uh, just kind of a, a God who's removed himself 
you know, just kind of set everything in motion and then just kick back and just let it be what it is. He says, or <laughs> most terrifying of all, behind everything is just an evil spirit, an evil God. He says, it seems to be that when you take life, you know, you've either got a God who doesn't exist, a God who doesn't care, or a God who's just evil. Um, the 18th century Scottish philosopher that, that many atheists still in the 21st century love to quote, a guy by the name of David Hume, and, and he had a way to kind of just put it out there as well. And it's the same problem. It's the problem of pain, suffering, and justice in the world. He says, here, here's, here's the thing. Is God willing to prevent evil? but not able? If so, then he's impotent. Is he able to, but not willing? Then that just makes him malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then please tell me why then there is evil in the world. In other words, if you're telling me that God is good, I think he would. I think he would do something about this. And I think if God could, I think he would. If he's good and he could, he would. So what gives? Because you still got life over here. If God can, why doesn't he? If God is good and loving, why doesn't he? Why is there still so much pain and suffering in the human experience? Now, this is not a question that's bothered people, you know, just for a few years. This, is, this has bothered people for centuries, all throughout history. And it's still a question that bothers people today. How can a good, loving, just God allow a world full of pain, suffering, and injustice? That, that's, that's a question. And you'll listen. If you'll listen long enough, you'll hear this talked about in many circles, even, you know, in our 21st century culture. I mean, this is still a conversation that's so emotional and, and so relevant to, to where we live at in our little space of history. And, and to sit under this question, uh, and I wanted to just let it dangle here for the, for the first few minutes, it is a little bit emotionally unsettling because some of you are right now thinking, I, I wish I didn't have come to church. I, I don't think about this stuff. And matter of fact, I don't like thinking about it right now. And that's okay. It's okay to think, and it's okay to think at church. I think you should. Uh, it's a little emotionally unsettling to just try to think about this stuff because the line of thinking goes like this. If God is all-powerful, he can stop suffering, okay? If God is all-knowing, then he's aware of pain and suffering. And if God is good, then he would want to stop pain and suffering, yet he hasn't. So many atheists and uh, people, you know, in the agnostic camp will say, well, then see, God must not be either all powerful, all knowing or all good. He may be all powerful, but maybe not all good. Or he may be all power, all good, but not all powerful. And, and maybe he just doesn't know. So he's not all knowing. Now, before some of you check out, because you're like, oh my Lord, I cannot see the relevance of this. I cannot see the value of this. This feels like a conundrum that's best debated by philosophers and theologians. I want you to know that this has very real life application. If you're a mom or dad, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you. Kids, students, middle school, high school students, college students for sure are getting inundated with this kind of thought, this kind of question, you know, as a seed for doubt, as a seed, you know, not to even think that for a moment that, yeah, there is a God and much less that he's good, just, and loving. But this has real life application and value because when I think about this stuff and I talk about this stuff, I'm thinking about the teenager who's got a mom suffering with cancer and he goes to his student group every Wednesday night, every Wednesday night, every Wednesday night, and he comes home every single day of his life and he begs his heavenly father to heal his mom, heal his mom, heal his mom because he's been told that God can and he's been told that God is good. So God since you can and God since you're good, the best thing that I can think that you could do for me is to heal my mom, heal my mom, heal my mom. 
And he prays that prayer until she dies. I care about what that middle school or high school student or college student, I care about what they think about God, not only while they're walking through it, but I care about how they think and feel about God on the backside of that unanswered prayer. I think about the parent who's praying for their child to come back home, who's gotten wayward, who's making self-destructive choices and decisions, wrecking their own life, and they're praying for their son and daughter to knock it off, to see it clearly, to just come back and to start living life healthy again. But so far, no answer. I'm thinking about the person who gets the call in the middle of the night and says, you gotta get to the hospital and they sit in the waiting room of ICU or they sit in the waiting room of the operating room and they're praying, they're praying, they're praying, they're praying for good news, for good news, for good news, but good news doesn't come. It's the person who carries the secret brokenness in their soul and it's a weight that they can't hardly even manage, much less bear. And they've been praying and searching for healing and no healing has come. It's for the man or the woman sitting at home at night watching the news thinking how in God's name, how under God's heaven are us humans capable of doing this to each other and much less capable of doing this to each other. Why is this allowed to exist? Why is this allowed to continue? That's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the darkness of the soul and the darkness of the darkest night when all hells broke loose and the worst case scenario becomes reality, how we think and feel about God matters much. And that brings me to the problem of pain as it relates to unbelief because the problem of pain is perhaps the greatest temptation that we face for unbelief because we see the pain in the world. We feel it, we hear it, we experience it and we're immersed right in it because this is our planet. This is our world where we live in. And, and so we're tempted to not believe at times because of pain and suffering. Sometimes our own, sometimes somebody else's. Or we just get so apathetic about our faith and so apathetic about God, we just think, well, nothing really matters and we just go about living our life ever how we wanna live our life. But deciding not to believe in God because of pain and suffering, be it yours or somebody else's, I would say is more emotional, really not rational. I say that because if you decide to disbelieve in God because of the evil in the world, you've got a philosophical problem because the only way that you can appeal to the idea of evil and the only way that you can appeal to the idea of good is if there is an absolute determining measurement of what is evil and what is good, and that is God. So if you say, I don't believe in God anymore because of the evil in the world, I would say, how do you even know there's evil in the world? And by what standard have you come to that conclusion? By what objective authority do you appeal to other than your own thinking, other than your own opinion? Well, that's evil. Well, how do you know it's evil? I just do. Well, somebody somewhere else in the world doesn't think that it's evil. We look at Joseph Stalin and we think that is evil incarnate. He had no problem with himself. So if you say there's no such thing as God, if God doesn't exist, neither does good or evil. Everything's just relative or we collectively agree on it as a society. Now, I promise we're going somewhere. Just, just stay locked in for just a moment because this is really a, a big deal. If, if God doesn't exist, it's just biology. It's just chemistry. It's just physics. Ridding yourself of God doesn't rid yourself of the problem of pain. It leaves you with a bigger problem because now pain and suffering and justice and all of that is just meaningless and purposeless. 
That's what you're left with. We're just part of an animalistic survival system that offers us no meaning or hope. We're no different than the animals. We're the strong eat the weak. The survival of the fittest, baby, the strongest. Everybody else gets left behind. Everybody else dies. It's only the strong that march forward. It's just biochemistry and physics. We're just cosmic accidents with no meaning and no purpose, clawing and fighting to survive. So to get rid of God is to get rid of the idea of good and evil because it won't exist in a relative environment. It can't. As Martin Luther King wrote in his uh, letters from Birmingham, he said, if there was not a higher law, how would I ever know that an injustice exists to begin with? Now, I'm gonna give you this and then I'm gonna give it to you and uh, we're gonna be done. Richard, Richard Dawkins, who um, is, is one of the more famous atheists in, in the last uh, decade or so, and, and atheists love to quote him, and he does lots of debates, really smart guy, uh, but he captures kind of this worldview. Like if you rid yourself of God uh, because you don't want to, you know, think of God existing uh, at the same time a world full of pain and suffering exists all around you, he, he says this. He says, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. Uh, during the minute that it takes for me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are gonna get hurt. Other people are gonna get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it or any justice. The universe, and this is kind of his conclusion, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. That's what you're left with when you rid yourself of God in order to try to rid yourself of the problem of pain. If a person decides that God doesn't exist because of the pain and suffering in the world, you're left with a world of no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. But here's my question. Why does injustice, pain, and suffering bother us so much? Why does it bother us? Because when we see it and we hear it and we feel it and we experience it, I think it's because something on the inside says to us, hmm, this isn't good. There's something on the inside that nobody taught you. There's just something on the inside. This is not right. This is not the way things should be. This is not the way things were intended to be. There's that thing that C.S. Lewis called, it's that ought. And we don't even know where the ought comes from. It's things not ought to be like this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And this is something the scripture acknowledges over and over again, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that wherever there's pain, justice, and suffering, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way that it was designed to be. And that's what's so great about the scripture, as problematic as some of the parts are, and I'll grant you, there's some problems in there. there there's some things that cause you to scratch your head that there's not a good answer for. I'll be the first to admit it. But the scriptures do not hide from the plain fact that there's suffering in the world. And the scriptures and the writers of scriptures do not assume that it's incompatible to have faith in God being a loving, just God, all the while there's injustice, pain, and suffering in the world. The biblical writers never saw that as incompatible with true faith. 
Uh, let me give you a couple examples. King Solomon, he wrote in his, in his diary. He says, again, today I looked out and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. All right. What he saw then, we can, we can see today. It's still there. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living. I'm it's not, a, you're not having a great day. He hadn't had his coffee yet. Uh, he's like, I'm telling you, the dead, the dead are better off than we are. I'll tell you, they're happier than the living who are still alive. And he says, oh, but better, better than that is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. He, he kind of sounds like, you know, some of the sin in our world, I just, I don't, I just, I don't want to bring children into the world the way it is. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't want my kids to grow up in this world. And he, he says, hey, listen, let me tell you who's the best off, that person who's not been born. Because they, they don't have to deal with all this pain, suffering, and evil. And so Solomon, he didn't back up from it. He, he didn't try to pretend that things were better than they were. David said, Psalm 10, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? All this trouble, all this hell breaking loose, and God, it's like... Anywhere? No? Okay. We'll deal with it. Thanks. I think. I mean, it's there. I mean, it's, you understand what that feels like. Or, or the minor prophet Habakkuk, he says, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen or cry out to you violence, but you don't save? Why do you make me look at all the injustice? Why do you seemingly tolerate wrongdoing? This bothers me more than it seems to bother you. Destruction, violence are before me. There's strife, conflicts abounds. Therefore, the law's paralyzed. <laughs> Sounds like a commentary of 21st century America. The law's paralyzed. It's like we have law, but no order. It's like, what's going on? And justice never prevails. It's like, I, it, the, there's no justice. It's like, you know, the people who get away with it are always get away with it. And the people who get caught always get caught. And it's like the wicked him and the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now, that could be a commentary by just about anybody who's paying attention to our world today. You say, well, why do you tell us that? Because you know what we see, what we feel, what we experience, what we think, it is not new. It's not new. The problem of evil, the problem of pain, it's been around, it's been around from the very beginning. It's the problem that won't go away. So the scriptures acknowledge this problem, but the scriptures also help to frame and explain this problem. And it does so from the very beginning because this is important. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? Why is there pain and suffering in the world? Well, that's a great question. And it gives us, to it, it gives us the answer in the opening pages of Genesis. You, you kind of know this story. I'm going to give it to you fast. But it says, you know, when God created humanity, placed them in the garden, it says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free. And I love that. I point it out every time I read this verse, that God's first words to humanity was, you are free, not constricted, not restrained, not put in a small box. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. A lot of us grew up in a version of Christianity, a version of faith that just seemingly tried to suck all the life out of life, all the fun out of life, all the enjoyment, all the celebration, all that, and just put it in the smallest possible box ever and make life as boring as possible and call it faith. But God's first words was, you're free. You're free. I'm giving you the whole garden. You're free. Look at all this fun. Look at all these things. But, but, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you will certainly die. So he gives them all the trees except for one tree. And the one tree he kept from them because it was not good. 
It was not good for them. It was not good for the world. It will hurt them. It will hurt the world. It will undermine them. It will undermine what was designed and intended for the world. So from the very beginning, God says, hey, you're free, but in your freedom, I'm also gonna give you what theologians call free moral agency. I'm gonna give you the ability to make your own choices. That's what kind of power you've got. That's what kind of power I've got. God gives me the power to make my own choices. I'm not a divine robot. My life is not programmed out every, he gives me the power of choice. And then he says, use it wisely because every one of those choices come prepackaged with a consequence. Now, when I grew up, I was about 14, 15 or 16 and I can remember laying in bed at night and I was weird. I get it, I'm still weird. And if you know me, you know that's true. That's a gospel. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, and only amen of the sermon so far. Uh, I remember being 14, 15, 16 and not being able to sleep at night and, and thinking about Genesis because I was one of the weird kids that read the Bible. I read it and, and, and I read it and I'm not sure it was good for me. Uh, it caused me lots of uh, consternation. Uh, and I would sit there at night and I would wrestle, not every night, but for a long period of time, like, God, why even create a forbidden tree to begin with? You ever had that thought? And it would just drive me bananas because, you know, it was like, why, why do that? Why not just give us the whole garden and say, have at it. All right, let's go. Let's let the party start. And, and just let, let's rock and roll. Why, why make one tree? that we can't eat from, why? Why is that necessary? Why, why build that into the fabric of, of your cosmic plan? And, and it's because of the nature of a relationship. God wanted a relationship with his creation. He, he wanted a relationship with the men and women who would bear his image. And in order to have a relationship with somebody, someone has to have the choice to be in a relationship with you or not. Because if you compel them, that is not called a relationship, that is called a hostage situation. So he says, I want a relationship with you, but it's your choice whether or not to want to be in a relationship with me. And so God gives us free will. And in a world where God gives us free will, not even God gets everything that he wants. And so here's the idea. The idea is this, love requires the freedom of choice. That if you're gonna love me and I'm gonna love you, I have to have a choice to do that or not do that. Because if I have no choice not to love you, that's not love. So relationship requires a choice and God wanted a relationship. So God had to give humanity a choice. And wherever there is a choice for love, there also simultaneously, philosophically, also has to exist at the same time in real time, the possibility for evil. Because any diminishment of love, which is good, any diminishment of good is evil. The absence of good is evil. And so what did they choose? They choose to do exactly what God told them not to do. And now everything that we find troubling, angering, heartbreaking about the world all the pain, strife, injustice, suffering entered in in that moment of sin when they chose their way over God's way. Sin came in, propped open the door, and as sin propped open the door, here came sorrow, here came injustice, here came death. And that's the storyline for the rest of the scripture. Now, the Old Testament captures life in all of its fullness. You'll read the Old Testament, you'll find stories that contain laughter and love and joy. You'll find babies being born and couples getting married. But also, in the fullness of life, you'll find dinner parties in the Old Testament, people drinking wine, people having a great time celebrating God, doing all these things, taking journeys, exploration, discovering victories, all this stuff that we think is great about life. But at the same time, there's famine, sickness, disease, violence, death, war, 
All of it existing in real time side by side. So the, you know, the scriptures don't sugarcoat it. It just gives us an explanation for why life is what we know it is. And so that brings us to the New Testament. And in a world where Jesus came to die for sins, he was buried and raised from the dead, the paradigm is even clearer. The paradigm is even more compelling. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, he, he writes this about pain and suffering in the world. He says, because you can't rid yourself of God and rid yourself of the problem of pain, so you gotta know how to deal with pain and suffering, especially when it comes to yours. And this is what he says, his dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, and guess what? <laughs> he acknowledges it. There will be troubles that come your way. Troubles that you didn't invite in, that you never planned on facing. He's talking about everything from the uncomfortable to the unbearable. It's also troubles that we invited, that we caused ourselves, that our choice had a prepackaged consequence and it led to trouble. But it's uncomfortable, it's unbearable, it's trouble in your life, it's trouble in my life. He says, you can just go ahead and you can count on it. You can count on it. When troubles come and they will come, troubles will come, make no mistake about it. It's gonna happen. Doesn't matter how spiritual you are, how much faith you can't faith it away, can't pray it away, you can't obey it away. They're gonna come. This is the nature of the world that we live in. Why do we live in this world? All the way back in Genesis, the door got opened because of the power of choice. We chose this, and we've been choosing it ever since in many, many ways. He says, so don't be surprised when this happens. Don't be surprised by the fact that life is hard. Life's gonna kick you in the teeth. Life's not gonna make a reservation before it decides to unplug all hell in your life. It, it, it doesn't do that. And I'll say it again later, but I'm gonna say it now. Life's hard, but God is also good. Don't confuse the two. Don't confuse the two. You got life and you got God. Don't confuse life with God. And don't confuse God with your life. Life is full of challenging circumstances. Life is full of heart-wrenching trouble and difficulty. And there's no promises of easy beginnings or happy endings. There's no promise about easy sailings or limited interruptions. That's just not the way it is. Matter of fact, Jesus said, in this world, talk to me. I've not asked you to talk to me yet. In this world, you will have what? Troubles, tribulation, difficulties. But hey, be of good cheer. Be encouraged because I have overcome the world and so can you. Pain and suffering is not the derailment of your faith. It is not the derailment of your life. You don't have to be captive to the pain and the suffering and the injustice of the world. Life doesn't have to get the best of you. You, you don't have to be a slave to your circumstances. You just don't. They're an opportunity. Look at what James says again. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Predecide that you're going to look at pain and suffering and injustice in the world in a much different way with a much broader mindset. Whenever you feel pain, disappointment, remind yourself there's an opportunity in this. There's an opportunity in this difficulty to grow, to learn, to get stronger, to be better. There's an opportunity in this for God to do something. I don't understand how God can use it, but my faith says God can use it. He can use it in my life. He can use it in the life of others. And not only just see the pain and suffering and justice that exists in your life that way, you take that filter and you look out to the world and know that what is true of you is also true of everyone else. Remind yourself that life isn't random. God's in control. Everything either comes from his hand or through his hand. Amen. 
He can redeem it all, the good and the bad. He can redeem the pain, the suffering, the injustice. He redeems the trials and the troubles. That's what Paul was talking about when he said in Romans 8, 28, that God is able to work all things, all things, all things for good. Your good, my good. So don't look to your pain, look through pain. Don't look to the pain of the world, look through the pain of the world. Don't look to the injustice, but through the injustice, to know that on the other side of that, God has good waiting. And you can find joy in that. You can find peace in that. You can find hope in that. You're not joying in the pain. That's, that's silly. You, you, you don't find that the hurt is good. No, it hurts. It's grievous. It's terrible. It's heartbreaking. It's gut-wrenching. You're not joying in it. You're joying what you see on the other side of it that God can take the bad and even do something good with it. So it's a way of thinking, it's a framework. So, you know, the scripture, especially James, they, they all acknowledge life is painful and life isn't fair. Life is painful, life isn't fair. It's the way it works, it's the way it is. There's no real correlation between the wrong that we commit and the pain we experience. That, that's, that's, a lot of Christians live as if they believe in karma. What goes around comes around. Well, not always. Not always. We want good things to happen to good people and bad things to happen to bad people because we assume we must be in the good people category. <laughs> uh, for some of us who have a little bit more self-awareness, I'm like, thank God it doesn't work that way. I, chink. I, I, don't, I don't want that kind of world. Sometimes you do the right thing and life sticks it to you anyway. Sometimes you do all your exercises and die at 50. Sometimes you can Big Mac your way into your 80s. It's just the way it works. So James says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know when, you, when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. You don't get to choose what you face in life, but you do get to choose how you face it. Every trial, difficulty, injustice, all of it, provides an opportunity for something good. It's an opportunity to grow, to see things differently, to experience God more profoundly, but it's all connected to how we choose to face it. When life tries your faith, you ever been there? You ever been in the midst of a trial of your faith and you realize that, hey, my faith is being tested? You feel like you're ignored. You feel like you're forgotten. You feel like, God, how could you let this happen to me? Don't you know all the things that I've done? Don't you know all the things that I've tried to accomplish for you and your name? And now this, when you realize that your faith isn't magic and faith is not a genie in a bottle that you can go rub when life gets hard and, and just say, God, I, I've got a wish. I, I, I need you to do this. And when you realize it doesn't work that way, that faith isn't an insulation from problems or difficulty, when you're fighting to still believe that God is good when life is so very bad, that's the testing of faith. And, and James says, consider it joy to be in that spot because you get to decide how you respond. I, I've told you this before and I'll tell you again because I, I, I remind myself all the time, faith isn't about receiving the things from God we wanted as much as it is learning to receive from God the things that we didn't want. It's not about do I have faith to be healed, it's, do I have faith not to be healed? It's not do I have faith to escape my circumstances, but do I have faith to endure my circumstances? Can I endure it without becoming bitter, resentful, or cynical, and without losing my faith? 
Can I, can I keep going through this even though I want to quit? This is how Jesus faced the cross for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He didn't see the cross as a source of joy. He saw what was on the other side of the cross as a source for joy. And you know what he saw on the other side of the cross? He saw you. He saw me. He saw us. He saw a lost world being found. He saw sinners coming back home to their heavenly father. He saw us. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the short term. He endured the pain and the injustice because he saw through it to what God was going to do on the other side. Even Jesus said, hey, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, why nevertheless? Because he believed that on the other side of the cup was something good. And he found joy in that. And he hung his hope on that. What we believe about pain, suffering, and justice, whether it's ours or somebody else's in the world, is of great consequence. Faith is living through the worst of life while still believing the best about God. That's what I'm learning about faith. Faith is living through the worst of life while still believing the best about God, and that's not always easy. It's an act of faith that results in perseverance and endurance, the strength not to quit, the resolve not to give in, not to walk away. It's rising above without dropping out and saying, you know, I'm done with this. I'm done with God. I'm done with church. I'm, I'm just, I, you know, what kind of God? Who would let this? I, I, I'm just, prayers don't work. It doesn't work. What's the practical value of all of this stuff anyway? So James, he wraps it up and he says, so let it grow. Let your faith grow for when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete needing nothing. When you let this perspective and this framework and you take all of this and you put it together, your perspective is going to allow you to see further. You're going to be able to see deeper and you're going to go further, faster because you understand pain and suffering yours and for those that are around you. Because trials and difficulty, they have a refining power. C.S. Lewis would say he, he whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts at us through our pain. He gets our, gets our attention, sharpens our focus, all of a sudden, we appreciate things that we have neglected. We take time to enjoy things that we had ignored. I'm telling you, in my line of work, nobody calls the church and says, let me tell you what a great day I'm having. I don't. Every day of my life, I feel like, every day of my life, I feel like, and it's not like I'm, I'm not saying this is, you know, pity or whatever. Uh, every day of my life is, is really in some way connected to sick and dying situations. Sick and dying situations, just heartbreak, heart, just heart sick, just gut wrenching. And, and it's real difficult. It's real difficult to go through the best of life and still maintain the belief about the best of God. But let me tell you, the more I hear about that and the more I'm confronted with it and the more that, you know, you have to be immersed in it, um, it, it helps you begin to see when, when we choose to see it the way we're supposed to see it. It helps us love better. It helps us be patient with other people more so than we would have been. It helps us to understand, hey, this is life. And this was the perspective Paul. Paul, Paul came along, and I'll give you two more verses, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up because th let me tell you, this, this could be a month worth. Uh, matter of fact, C.S. Lewis wrote a book on it, and it's hilarious that I'm up here in the amount of time that they give me to talk about what he wrote not only one book about, but two books about. But the, the Apostle Paul says, I consider that the present sufferings of, of my life, this world, not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. There, there's pain and there's glory, but guess what? If you're in it for the pain, you're also in it for the glory. And if you're in it for the glory, mm -hmm, you're also in it for the pain. So it is. 
He also said for our light and our momentary troubles, it's not forever, it's temporary, are achieving for us an eternal, and one translation goes ahead and puts what's implicit in there, the eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. And Paul would say, you know what? When life was life, I didn't quit, I didn't walk away, I did not see my faith in a good, just, loving God, incompatible with the reality, the harsh reality of life. Because Paul said, I believe that whatever I'm facing, whatever I'm going through, the weight of that does not compare to the weight of the glory that God has prepared for me. And then James closes out his book, his letter, and he says, so we give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. And it's like he just throws it out there and he's like, listen, you know what I've said? Job, Job. Just get that in your head, Job. He lost it all, his wealth, his health, his family, his reputation. And somehow, <laughs> it didn't happen overnight. He was angry. You go listen to some of Job's prayers. I mean, whew, he said some things to God that were, mm, but you know what I learned out of the book of Job? God would rather me scream at him. God would rather me curse at him than to ignore him and neglect him and pretend as though he's not there. Job embraced the honesty of his emotions and the brutality of life and he was like, who do you think you are and what do you think you're doing? But then he gets to the place where he can say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He knows the way that I take and even though it's like fire, I know when I come forth, I'm going to be like gold that's been tried in the fire. And then there's Jesus, God incarnate, who came to be one of us. And Dorothy Sayers said it better than I ever could. She said, for whatever reason, God God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. No wonder the prophet Isaiah said he is a man of sorrows acquainted with our grief. You know what Jesus reminds us of? We can have confidence in the rest of the story. An empty tomb is there to prove that the best is yet to come. There will be a day when he makes the world right again. And injustice, pain, and suffering will be no more. There will be good on the other side of it. Good for you. Good for me. Good for the world. God cannot and God will not waste your pain or your suffering. He's going to bring good out of every last drop of it. Heavenly Father, 
remind us that one day when we tell the stories of our life, it will be the story of your goodness and redemption and mercy, how you brought us out of darkness into light, how you brought us out of heaviness into praise, how you brought us from a place of pain to purpose, how you brought us through the ashes to a place of beauty. God, you took what had been destroyed and you rebuilt it and it was good. We'll tell the story of our lives, of how you were there even when we couldn't see you, even when we didn't know it, you were bringing good out of it all. That is our story. That will be our story. The tomb reminds us the best is yet to come. That is our hope. May we ever hold on to it in Jesus' name.